1: A lot of times with my kids, I'll say like, okay, well, what do you think you should do? And they're like, I feel like I should write something back. And But I don't know what to write. The kid will say, and it's okay. Well, let's work it out. Let's role play digitally here. Let me help you word it. And then you could know.
0: Hi, and welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. Each episode focuses on a variety of relatable topics, including parenting, family, children, relationships, mental health, and pop culture. Hear from a variety of medical professionals, psychological experts, authors, celebrities, and other parents with inspiring stories. You'll feel like you're in the same room with your friends getting all of your questions answered. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll learn, and you'll have fun. On today's episode, we have Dr. Katherine Perlman, who is the founder of The Family Coach and is a licensed clinical social worker who has been working with children and families for over 25 years. Dr. Perlman is also the author of First Phone, A Child's Guide to Digital Responsibility, Safety, and Etiquette, and she is the mom of two teens. Dr. Perlman, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Yes. I was sharing, you know, before we started recording, I was sharing how I've been loving your new book, uh, First Phone. I'm kind of at a life stage right now where my daughter's about to turn nine and some of her friends at school already have their first phone. And of course, she's been asking, when do I get mine? And my husband and I have been kind of, you know, going back and forth, having lots of conversations together and also with her about what it takes to have a phone and, you know, what kind of responsibility it takes to have a phone and, was kind of in that life stage where we're kind of at that point of wondering when she should get her first phone. So your book couldn't have come at a better time, and this conversation couldn't have become a better time. So um, I love that you wrote it, but for anyone who hasn't been, who hasn't read it yet and been introduced to it yet, I would love for you just to give a quick introduction about the book and um, who it's written for and your intentions behind it.
1: Yeah. So um, for years I had been hearing from parents um, in a time of crisis, oops, my child saw something inappropriate, access pornography, ordered something on amazon um all kinds of things, and what I realized is these were conscientious parents, these were sometimes tech savvy parents, these were people who were highly involved with their kids, and this was still happening, so it really got me thinking and then the pandemic happened where kids who might've been on their screens an hour or two a day were now on for eight to 12 hours a day, socializing, going to school, doing homework. And the access just increased so quickly, but the education about that access just stopped. Um, and so I really was thinking, you know, I wonder what we could do to help kids and families address this digital education gap. And what I saw was there were lots of books for parents about how to manage their kids' screen time and their digital lives. But then it leaves it up to the parent to implement. And that, I think, is so hard. And there was almost nothing written for kids, especially in the age range where they're going to start thinking about a phone or having more access to iPads and things like that. Um, There was really nothing for them to learn how to be good digital citizens on their own when their parents aren't around. So um, I wrote the book for kids, but it really... So it's written, you know, in language for kids. There are five kids that kind of talk to the kids directly in the book. But um, to me, it's really like a guide and a gift for parents, so that they don't have to figure this all out on their own. All the prompts are there, all the topics are there, and hopefully, it's just a part, a, a place to begin the conversation um, and to help guide the parent and the kid.
0: Yes. And that's what I was, when I was reading the book, that's kind of what I was gathering from too. And I was reading it thinking, oh, this is so great because this is something my child and I can read together and then we can discuss it after the fact. So, um, but I, I, I love the format of it. I love how you've written it for kids. I think that's so important because I don't think there is a lot of books like that. And I think, you know, when they become nine or when they're ready and responsible enough to have their first, first phone, they should be able to have some literature that they can read on it on their own. I don't think necessarily, you know, the, the parent should be teaching it every single step of the way. There should be some autonomy and independence, is, is that and well. But then also, the parent can follow up with the conversation after the fact. So, we're going to dive into lots of different topics today, uh, you know, based on what you wrote and just how to keep our kids safe online. I know you mentioned, you know, that kids are being introduced, especially during the pandemic, to longer screen times and more opportunities to go online, which, you know, could increase cyberbullying, could increase things they're seeing on the internet. I know my, my daughter got her first iPad in kindergarten uh, as well. My son, he's in kindergarten this year and he got his, he's getting his first iPad and they have some, co- you know, controls on there, but there's some things that I know from talking to other parents that these second, first, second, you know, um, kindergarten, first and second graders have already seen Even accidentally, like you said, very conscientious parents that have seen accidentally where they put in something like, you know, love's first kiss because they've been watching a lot of Disney movies and are, you know, love Cinderella and all the things. And then something else comes up of two people kissing that's not Disney related and may not necessarily be appropriate. So, because the internet is just so vast, I know you have a chapter on Googling and, and, you know, whatnot. How do we keep our kids safe? when there's just so much they can see out there. I mean, how many controls do you need? And I feel like sometimes, depending on what word you type in the search engine, things can still pop up. So what do you suggest to parents, or even what do you suggest in your book for kids, and what suggestions do you have for them to keep them as safe as possible?
1: So first, I mean, because of what you say, that kids are really having access at such a young age, I think some parents have like a false sense of security. It's like, oh, my kid doesn't have a phone. I don't have to worry about these things. But first of all, they are having accidental access way earlier. And also, even if your kid doesn't have a phone, there's a good chance that their friend has a phone. And when they're over at a play date, they have access to something and you're not there to guide them. So I really want to start us talking about digital education in preschool and kindergarten in the same way we think about health, and sex education, and teaching kids about their bodies in age-appropriate ways. I also want to do that about the digital world. We talk about stranger danger. We talk about that in person. We have to also talk about that in the digital world. And it's not to scare kids, but kids can make good choices, but we have to educate them. We have to give them the information in age-appropriate ways. And so in terms of keeping kids safe, you know, I really want to talk to them about predators that are online, scams that happen, you know, sometimes your kid could be watching something and there's a pop up. And they just think, okay, I'll just click close this, but that's the actual wrong button to push. Um, Or they think, you know, they won something and they're super excited. And they didn't win something. It's a scam. And so um, talking about that, but also, you know, uh, predators for kids online are very skilled. And it's way easier in some ways than it is for a predator in person because kids have a good sense about, ah, this person is off. I don't feel comfortable. I'm not going to be with that person. The problem is online, these predators look like kids and they right. act like kids and they take their time with these kids. So it might be a year or two that this friend, I'm using air quotes, um, is, you know, in a chat group online with a bunch of their actual real friends. They think this is a buddy of theirs. They think it might be someone at their school. It's not. It's a 60-year-old man in his house and wherever who's trying to befriend your kid. And before you know it, is asking where they live and how old they are. And before you know it, they're asking for pictures. And the kid feels like ashamed and maybe they can't tell their parents because they got in too far and they should have known better. If we start these conversations with the kids early, then what happens is they feel comfortable coming to us and saying, I pushed on something I shouldn't have. I said something I shouldn't have. It happens to all of us. And so then we say, okay, honey, thank you so much for telling me. Let me help you with this situation. Let me guide you. Let me keep you safe. Let's block this person. Let's report it to the police if necessary. Um, And also teach them to be more mindful about who they talk to, what they share. You know, there are a certain amount of private information that we can teach kids. We never, ever, ever share with anybody online, even if we think we know them, ever. My mom actually sent an email the other day with her, like, Uh, security code for her computer and for her home. And I said, mom, you cannot send this in an email, you know? And she was like, you know what? You're right. Um, And so these are the kind of things that we have to prep our kids with at a very young age.
0: Right. I agree. And it's so easy to make those very innocent mistakes, right? Especially for a child who might think they won a thousand dollars. That would be exciting, right? I mean, I would even think that's exciting at my age, And, you know, I'll have to admit, you know, the other day, a friend from grad school sent me something in a Facebook message. And I mean, I'm, you know, obviously I work online for a lot of my living. And so I'm very keen to not clicking on links that are unfamiliar to me or, you know, things that might be corrupt and whatnot. But as educated as I am, as old as I am, and as savvy as I am online, The other day, someone, like I said, from grad school sent me something on Facebook Messenger and it looked pretty legit. And it was literally from someone I've known for over 20 years. I clicked on the link. And then about two minutes later, they said, oh, don't click on the link. It was, you know, scam. And nothing's happened yet. You know, I say yet because you never know when things could just, you know, they could get in your passwords. And like you said, it could take a lot of time. But I was devastated. I couldn't sleep. I was completely stressed out, and that's me at my age. Like I said, and as, as savvy and educated as I am, for a child who you know m- may not know all of those things, um, I can I can imagine it being a pretty scary world out there. Thinking you know that these predators and these types of scams are out there, um, especially if they're if they're pretending to be a child and a friend. Especially my my kids love playing Minecraft. And I know there's sometimes other people or there's Fortnite and all the others where other people can play video games with them in those worlds. And you might think you're playing with someone from your school, like you said, and it's and it's not. And that's and that's pretty scary. And I know kids have gotten in, in the mix of sending money to people, right? They say, I'm I'm in need for something or I can't pay my bill this month. Can you send me two hundred dollars via Venmo? It's so easy. Everything's so easy access these days to send money or to you know do whatever. Hey, I want to send you something for your birthday. Give me your address. Who doesn't want a birthday gift on their birthday, right? right. <laughs> so there's just so many savvy ways, like you said. And so I think having those conversations and preventatively at an early age, as you mentioned, I think is key in keeping those doors of communication open, right? Um, so let me ask you from the research you did and in your book, what age should a child be getting their first phone? I know there's different factors involved, but what should a parent think about when they are thinking about getting their child that first phone?
1: So I used to think, you know, wait as long as possible, 13, 14 years old, that sounds great. The problem is, by the time the kid is 13, 14, they've had so much access before then. It's it, I mean they already know things, they're already accessing things and their friends all have phones. And right. so I don't want to do something as a parent just because all my kids friends do, but in this case, number 1, they're already doing all the things and we're not educating them because we think that they don't have a phone. And number 2, um they're going underground, they're not telling us, you know, they may have accounts that we don't even see. And by the time they're 14, they're one foot out the door in terms of, you know, their focus is on their friends and their social life. They're less interested in hearing from their parents and being educated by their parents. I actually think it's a little bit better to get a phone that doesn't have all the bells and whistles when the kid is somewhere between 10 and 12, where they can have very close monitoring, they can have good supervision, they can have time to educate and learn as they go, rather than you get this fully loaded phone at 14. And it's like, good luck, kid. And right. so kids at 10 and 11 are very interested in hearing from their parents and getting supervision and that kind of thing. So I think that's um an interesting age. And then what are kids uh, what are parents need to think about, you know, there are some legitimate needs why a kid would need a phone at 8 or 9 years old. For example, one of the kids in the book, I say has diabetes and monitors their blood sugar for life-saving information on their phone. Um, I know of divorced families where it is very important for the non-custodial parent to know that their kid has a phone so they can get in touch with them at any time. Um, Those are legitimate reasons why a kid may need a phone earlier. Um, And then to think about how is your kid currently with their screens? You know, are they quick to get off when you tell them it's time? Do they, you know, is it a constant battle with them asking for more screen time? If that's the case, then I would say you might want to hold off a little bit longer and address their screen time. Um, issues and how they can show you that they're ready by listening and putting in limits. Because once they get the phone, it's so much harder to do those limitations. So I think that. And then the last thing is, you know, how are they with their belongings? Are they responsible? Um, do their do their things come home from school? You know, that kind of responsibility. Are they showing you around the house that they're responsible um, and that they listen to commands and direction and they follow rules in the home? If yes, then great, This might they might be ready. If not, then maybe work on those things before you give them the fun. Oh,
0: that's great. I, I love those tips. and I'm taking notes because <laughs> I have a daughter right in that age group and she's right on the verge, right? She'll be nine soon and she's right there. Um, but I love, you know, teaching, like you said, a responsibility in other ways, you know, monitoring how much screen time they have now, you know, et cetera. Um, and, and like you mentioned, so many other kids have phones at these early ages that even if ours doesn't, they're still going to be exposed to some of these things anyway, especially when it comes to social media and TikTok and, you know, all the platforms. Um, I mean, me, I, I mean, I, I work on Instagram, you know, 80% of my, my job comes from social media, So I'm online all the time. So my daughters and my son, even who's five, is already very savvy of what Instagram is, what TikTok is, you know, things like that. I try to monitor it and do a lot of my online work when they're at school. So they're not exposed to it all the time, thinking that it's being normalized. Oh, well, mom's on her phone all the time. And, you know, so now I can be on the phone all the time. You know, I want to make sure there's that separation of, okay, I'm doing this for work and now I'm done. Like, you know. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's, there's those things too, but, um, but yeah, she's, she's on the verge. So I'm definitely taking notes. So <laughs> let me ask you this, how can we prevent things like too much screen time? I know that's such a a, 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 big question and it can go in a million different directions, but well, like you said, it's a lot harder once you actually have the phone, because I did an episode last year on addiction and social media addiction and that dopamine effect of what we get when we, you know, have that constant feedback from friends or people that we, that we know online, how can we prevent that for our kids? And how do we, how do we know it's too much? Maybe they're overstimulated, maybe they're acting out in different ways, but how can we monitor how much screen time is too much?
1: So it's funny, you know, it used to be when I first started practicing, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics said, you know, one to two hours a day of screen time. That is literally impossible. That is actually impossible with our kids these days. They are on for school. They are socialized. That's like actual legitimate socializing happens with their friends on screens. I hear my son. It is like he's on a play date. He's socializing with his friends, playing his video game. Um, And so it's that's not realistic anymore. Um I think what's more important is to think about um building in screen-free times so that there are certain times of the day where we don't use our screens like meal times when we're doing our homework that's not necessarily has to be on the computer um like my son yesterday I was just even talking to him and I said close your computer like look up what you need to do and then actually close your computer because it is impossible for you To not respond when you see your friends pop up that something's, you know, they're having a discussion. So we have to build in screen free time. And then we also know that kids have no way to disconnect from their social lives. And when I was growing up, I would go home from school. And when I was done with my friends, I wasn't on the phone with them. I could connect to myself, to my family life, to my own hobbies and interests. Nowadays, kids are connected 24 seven, they don't get a social break. And honestly, If you're a teenager and your whole world is your social environment, it's actually really stressful to be connected 24 hours a day. Um, And so building in these screen-free times is really important. Definitely keep phones out of the bedroom at night. And so that limits the amount of time on social media and the time that they're socializing with their friends and building in these other screen-free times. And the other thing that you said that I really love is that parents need to model this kind of good behavior because our kids are watching us. And these phones, I am shaming no parent, we are all addicted to our phones and that is not our fault. These phones are built and these apps are built to constantly engage us. That is the point. And so we really need these outside ways of um, addressing that kind of addiction. And I use addiction in sort of the loosest way possible, but we need, you know, limits. Like I was just on an Instagram live and I set my phone so I cannot have more than an hour a day And it popped up that it says, you know, your hour a day is done um, so that I can actually find ways to limit it because I would honestly be on just, just wasting time, not just for work, but after that, I'm still on, or we go to look up one thing. And now it's like 25 minutes later. I forgot even when I was going to look up. Um, So we (laughs) need to relate to that. Yeah, everyone. So it's like, I am not pointing fingers. I am the exact same as everybody else. So I have to build in these sort of external ways of dealing with my screen time. And we have to do the same for our kids. They need our help. They need our boundaries. They need us to put limitations on there. And sure, they are going to fight their parents on it. But they will, if it's a non-negotiable, they will accept it. They will settle in. And I guarantee they will actually like it. They like having a break from their friends, even though they say they don't. And they will beg for their phone as their alarm clock. I promise they don't need it and they will adjust to not having it. So to me, that is sort of the best way. And one of the chapters of my book that I added in was about self-care, because I think that what happens is we're not teaching our kids to recognize that our phones are making us feel all kinds of things. We feel joy, we have that dopamine hit, but we also have a lot of yucky feelings. You know, I look in the mirror, I do not look like the people that are perfectly filtered and they took a hundred pictures for this one that they're going to post. You know, nobody looks like that. I have pimples. I have areas in my body that I don't like. The same are uh, teenagers in puberty are certainly having all of these issues. And when they look in the mirror, they don't look like that. Their lives don't look like those perfect vacations. And so that gives us all kinds of feelings not so good ones. And we have to recognize we're feeling those things and do something about it. So that might be when we put our phone down. That might be when we do our self-care. And also sometimes that means unfollowing people that are making us feel yucky. There is not that we are anything wrong with those people, but it's having an effect on me. I don't like the way I feel around this. I'm going to separate myself. So we have to teach our kids those things.
0: Yes, exactly. And we can go on and on about self-care. I know because, you know, even just getting the adequate number of sleep at night to set us up for success for the next day. And if we're on our phone, you know, too late and for too long, especially in the bedroom, then it's harder to fall asleep and it's harder to get into that REM sleep and, and on and on. So um, definitely, definitely good to have those boundaries. We're going to take a quick break and then I want to come back and talk about how much is too much peer socialization and a little bit more about cyberbullying. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children. Okay. Okay. So we're back. And I just want to touch upon something that you mentioned before the break on having so much peer time, especially in that tween and teenage age group. How much is too much peer socialization? And how can we steer our kids in the right direction to, you know, take those breaks from their friends?
1: You know, I think that kids are Chronically over-socialized, honestly. And I think, you know, when we get towards the teen years, it's developmentally appropriate for kids to really move their focus out of their home and onto their friend group and their peer group. And that is good. That is like giving them one step closer to being independent adults. The problem is that there is no way to um, break that so that they can really focus on their own individual um, development so that they're not doing everything because their friends are doing it or posting the same thing or going to the same places. You know, we all wore the same pocketbook or haircut as our friends did. There's nothing wrong with that on some level. But when that's all the time, kids don't really have a chance to develop who they are as people, their own interests, their passions, their value systems. And so, you know, there is something where there is too much socialization. And so I do think that Helping kids have that break, you know, setting in those limitations where it's like, okay, an hour a day of social media and then it's turned off. Like I said, on my phone, I have it automatically shut off because I was incapable of shutting that off for myself um, and to limit my time. And we need to help our kids with that. And And we can explain to them why. I mean, they might not understand it right now, but we can at least give them information. It's not like just because I said so or just because it's bad. But let's actually talk through it. Let me tell you an example of my phone, or even better is what's in the news. I promise in your community there is an example of cyberbullying. There is an example of kids in um a a school group that have been you know messaging online that kind of went wrong. um There was maybe something where there was a private picture sent that was then posted and um all of that happens because we get um, kind of sucked into social pressures and it's so much easier when it's online. It's a lot, you know, harder for these things to, for that kind of bullying to happen when we're in person, like, you know, there's people around, there's some social cues. um, There's ways of kind of restricting that. And, but when it's in the digital world, I think it just happens so much more freely. And so I think that we need to help our kids have that break and recognize, why that's important, and using the news and using what's happening in our community and showing them things on our own phone or talking about our own experience, all of those things help them realize, actually, I need a break. And when we enforce the break, they get a chance to see what that's like. And they might fight it. They will argue till the death. But when that break is a requirement, all of a sudden, they are doing something they forgot about. They're finding their time to practice a piano or to do Legos or to go for a walk with their dad or play basketball or whatever it is, they're finding ways of reconnecting that they actually enjoy. So it has to be kind of mandated from the parent, um, but it, there's just incredible benefits there.
0: Yes. And and I have to agree with that. I, I do think there is such a thing as too much peer socialization. And I do think there needs to be breaks because I think the, the deeper you get into conversations Sometimes that could lead to problems. Right. Um, You know, not to not to say that we need to keep things on the surface all the time and, and, you know, more an acquaintance level. I mean, we have to get deep with some of our friends sometimes. But when we're constantly seeing things pop up on social media and someone's posting something new and we get a notification on our phone, we jump to go look at what that is. Or if we see a text message, you know, we want to read what they say because it might be something important. These days, sometimes I get so frustrated because I look at a new text message that comes in thinking, oh, cool, someone's saying something to me. And then all it is is like a, um, you know, a a thumbs up or a heart liking my last text message. And then I get kind of disappointed because I'm thinking, oh, that wasn't very like thrilling or exciting, (laughs) you know. But the whole point is that I think one thing I would suggest for parents to do, I don't know if you agree with this or not, is setting limits on the phone to not have the those notifications pop up all the time. So they're not constantly, you know, intriguing us and tempting us to actually go online. If, if the you know, if we want to look for a text message or if we want to look for something else, then, you know, we can go on those apps or we can do it when those times are right. But constantly getting those notifications that we have something new, I think only stirs the curiosity, you know, and I think that personally would be a limit for me you know, when when my kids eventually get their phones. So, and I think that could lead to cyberbullying, which is what I want to talk about, you know, next is how we can try and prevent that. Because like you said, people have a lot more guts online in the digital world than they do in real life. Things are said behind a computer screen that wouldn't be said to someone's face. Um, so what are your thoughts on that when it comes to being responsible with a phone? Um, how can we protect our kids, you know, from, you know, getting mixed up in in some of that negativity that gets talked about online?
1: Um, Well, first, I want to validate you and agree that um, we should definitely limit notifications for ourselves and for our kids. It is natural when we hear a ding to look and see what that is. And especially when it's a reinforcement of a like of something that we, you know, that is an actual reward. Um And we are like Pavlov's dogs, we can't help but like, get excited for whatever that is. Um, but it divides our attention constantly. And I think that, you know, it's one thing that it's also disappointing to us, but it also gets our um, mind out of whatever it is that we're doing or our focus off the person who's actually in front of us. Um, I have a friend who's always has news alerts come up and it's she's like, well, it's news, it's important. It's actually not important. And not only that, I, I don't necessarily need an assault of like terrible news coming to me all the time. If I want to look up the news, then it's available to me. But to have it uh, coming to me all the time, I think really does something to us. So for sure, limit notifications is really important um, for parents and for kids. Um, and then for cyberbullying, you know, I think sometimes cyberbullying is done so subtly. Um, kids don't understand social cues, and that's one thing I try to talk about in the book is that you know in person, kids can read faces, they can hear tone, um, they can see body language. In the digital world, there's none of that. And so we have to kind of teach them to um, ask questions to find out how somebody's feeling or what somebody means by something, or to use caution the way that they respond to somebody, um, because that person that they're responding to isn't going to see their social cue either. They're not going to know you're joking or being sarcastic. So, those kind of things. And then also teaching kids to be digital upstanders. You know, if you see somebody, you can say, well, oh, that's not very nice. You know, you don't have to be mean to the person who you conceive as bullying or maybe isn't being nice, but you can certainly stick up for the person and say, you know, I don't think that's very nice. Or if you see someone got a nasty comment, you can support your friend by saying, ah, that's nothing. You know, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. Let me give you a nice comment. to. let me write something, you know, so I can support you and let me get my friends to do it too. So it varies that negative comment. Um, if there's not something you can, um, you know, erase or delete. But you know, I think also um, there are a lot of chat groups, even for classes. This drives me crazy. There are thirty kids in a chat room. That is, of course, going to go wrong. That that those kids are not all friends. We should not force them to be together in some sort of artificial environment um, where there isn't a lot of supervision, and it can go wrong very, very quickly. Um, so you know, to try and teach kids how to manage that. And to come to you when they're, you know, feeling like somebody said something and they don't know how to handle it. A lot of times with my kids, I'll say like, okay, well, what do you think you should do? And they're like, I feel like I should write something back. And, but I don't know what to write. The kid will say, and it's okay, well, let's work it out. Let's role play digitally here. Let me help you word it. And then you could know how to do it. Um, so we don't have to leave them alone to respond to all these things. We can, help them, you know, put it into words and, and then, like, oh, yeah, 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 that's what I want to say. And over time, they kind of learn then how to respond digitally um, to kind of ward off some of these things or to stand up for
0: themselves. Right. Exactly. I love that because I'm, I'm super into role playing just in general, you know, when it comes to yeah. let's think of all the scenarios and then figure out what the best solution is. So I love doing it even digital, you know, in the digital way to know, you know, what should we do to respond to this? And how do you think the other person will respond and react once we write this or that? Um, you know, I think it's hard and I'll speak for myself. I don't know if anyone listening can relate to this, but I think it's hard for, I guess, this digital age because I didn't grow up with it. Right. I mean, I didn't have web, you know, internet uh, when I was growing up. I didn't have text messaging. I didn't have a cell phone, you know, um, until I was, you know, later. I mean, college, you know, age where I, those things started coming to fruition. Social media didn't even happen until much later after that. So, you know, to raise kids in a world where this is so driven, where this is so prominent, is so hard because there's the side of me that didn't grow up with it who's thinking, I don't want them exposed to any of it. You know, I want them to wait until they're older because I know what's out there, right? But then there's the other side of me that knows that these kids are being raised with iPads and, and things at such an early age and now phones that I can't keep them in a bubble either. And I, you know, they're, they're going to be exposed to it whether I like it or not. And so do I want to be in control of that? Do I want to spearhead that and and, and teach them the ways to be? Um, or do I just want the world to start taking them over and them learning from their friends or teachers or anything? Because the world's not stopping just because I might want it to, right? They're they're going to get exposed anyway, and if they are going to get exposed, I want to be the one that you know is spearheading it and teaching them. So for anyone who's out there who's listening, who's kind of in the same boat as far as you know being conflicted of of that of those two worlds colliding, really. Um it's I don't know, do you feel that way too or I mean is that do you do you hear a lot of parents saying that as well? For sure. And I think as parents we kind of need
1: to mourn the what would have been for our kids if the digital world wasn't, you know, omnipresent for them. I think that's fair. It's really a bummer, you know, to see the digital life our kids have in so many ways. I mean there's so many positives to it. And I try to start the book with like all the good things that happen in the digital world, because there really are incredible things that are happening, but there are some really big bummers. And I think as parents, we can't help but feel sad about that. But I think it's important to mourn that and then to move on, because the thing is, it is actually a reality for our kids. And when we are sort of stuck in this, you know, I wish it wasn't the case scenario, we are really not actually addressing the kids' real needs and the things that are coming up for them. And also we're setting a divide between us and them and we're putting shame into some of the things that they're doing instead of saying, let me have an open mind. Let me see what you're up to. Let's work through it. Let's do it in a healthy way. Let's try and address it and manage it um, because that's the reality. So um, I feel sad. (laughs) I I, I look around and I wish there weren't um, a lot of the things that I see, but it is what's happening. And so I'm trying to like address that in myself, but then also be realistic with what's going on for my kids.
0: Right. And, you know, I think there's, there's also the thing that I just, I didn't think I was going to be addressing some of these things at this age. I think in my head before I had kids, I was thinking, oh, well, look at their first phone, you know, when they're in high school or whatever it was. And now that I have kids and I have a child who's almost nine years old, I, I'm already starting to deal with it. And I think I just wasn't ready personally as a parent to deal with some of the things I'm dealing with at this age. So, but yeah. I think, you know, even for me, as much as I want to sh- shield my kids from the ugly stuff that we see online, the predators, the scams, um, you know, the cyberbullying, you know, all those things, even some social media, to be honest. Um, but I do want to get... In contact with my kids sometimes, and even with my daughter, there's sometimes a friend is gonna pick her up from school and not me. But I wanna make sure I tell her that personally because, you know, things could happen, you know, in that. Um, but I don't have a way to get a hold of her unless I call the school and I, you know, see if I can talk to the teacher or, you know, see if she can come to the phone in the classroom. So it'd be so much easier sometimes for her to have some type type of digital device. I know they have watches now too where you can text a child on a watch where it's they don't have all the social media apps and google and things but they at least can you know be in touch with them. So we're definitely going to be considering that soon because it would be nice at her age to get a hold of her and You know, in times when she's even at a friend's house, and you know, we want to make sure she's okay. You know, just check in with her and have her check in with us if she's ready to leave and she doesn't feel comfortable telling those parents, "I'm ready to go home," but she can tell us, and then we can come pick her up. So I think there's definitely some some benefits to that at an earlier age too. But we are out of time. But I did want to ask you if you have any other tips for someone like myself who's kind of on the fence, who has those kids in that age range where they're considering their first phone, any last minute advice or tips that you would give to someone who's, who's thinking about taking that next step, besides buying your book, of course. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, thanks. Buy the book. Um, a, a couple of things is, one is your first phone does not have to have all the bells and whistles. You can really go very simply. There are a lot of good options. Even an iPhone, you can just avoid all of the extra stuff. And there are some good limitations that are in the settings that can also be really helpful. Um, so you don't have to, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing. You can, and I do suggest start with something small, don't wait, um, and then you have time to educate. And then also just to think about digital education as a lifelong process, even as adults, there are updates, there are new scams, there are new technologies. We all have to consider you know, digital education as something that we have to do for the rest of our lives. And so it's not really a one and done. It's let's start small and just build and have millions of small conversations with our kids about technology and all these digital issues um, moving forward. So yeah, keep, keep it going and um, start small and build from there.
0: Yes. And I think just taking the first step is the hardest part. I think once you start educating yourself as a parent, and like you said, mourning what we thought might be and that's changed now. And I think just kind of diving in and taking that first step, even as parents is uh, the hardest part. And then everything else can start, you know, um, happening, like you said, in building blocks, but where can we find the book and where um, can we find you to follow you on social media uh, and whatnot? Where, what are your socials and whatnot?
1: Uh, so first book on the book is available on Amazon and generally wherever books are sold. And um, I am at thefamilycoach.com and Um, on Twitter and Facebook at The Family Coach.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much again for being on the show today. I love your book and I love all the wisdom that you gave. um, And I I can't wait to tell more parents about it, honestly, because I have a lot of friends who have kids in this age group as well. And I think they'd really benefit from it. So thank you again for sharing with us today. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Thank you for joining me today. I cannot wait for you to listen to more episodes. If you are a new listener, I recommend starting at my best of year one episode first, then make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. And when you love an episode, please leave a review. And if you want to stay connected between episodes, please visit me on social media at The Parentologist and on my blog at theparentologist.com. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.